Okay. <laughs> so, uh, very much as I was preparing this week um, for what we were looking at this morning, and in, in many ways, this will be a companion or a completion to what we were looking at this morning. I, I really felt compelled to look a little bit at the wider picture on how how we respond when we face opposition as 21st century Christians living in a current environment that we are living. And particularly wanted to uh, learn from the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter uh, writes um, his um, letters um, to Christians who are facing opposition. And I think he has some surprisingly good things to teach us uh, in that. Now, you may wonder why on earth are we looking at this? Um, I think increasingly for me, there's evidence in our society that Christians are likely to face persecution in, in our context in the Western world. Um, it was very difficult probably this morning to delve into, but if I would have had to have a different introduction this morning, I would have pointed to the murder of the Conservative MP. Um, although there isn't a lot of talk about the reasons, and I wouldn't want to speculate, um, certainly it is interesting that somebody who is um, of a very conservative, not just politically, but um, in terms of his Christian faith from the conservative agenda, you know, um, was, from what we know, killed in a terror-related incident by a Muslim person. Um, there could be a connection to that, or there might not be a connection. But certainly, I think there is increasing evidence in our society that Christians are likely to face persecution coming from different angles. And that is because there has been a seismic shift in our society, in the Western society. Christianity was the dominant force in society. Christianity shaped politics, shaped economics, shaped welfare, shaped education. It shaped everything. It is no longer so. We are not living in a Christian country. And Christians, and particularly Christians who are faithful to the teaching of the scriptures, are increasingly becoming a minority group. And therefore, I would dare say to you that the New Testament environment in which we find the letters and the epistles being written are beginning to resemble a familiar environment for us all these years on in a Western world. And I think increasingly over the next few years, we will find ourselves far more at home with the believers, like the casing point, those to whom Peter is writing to, who were um, an oppressed minority or a persecuted minority. I think this is likely to, to, to be the case. And I think it's going to be an increasing shock because this is not what we've been used to. It's a shift of roles and a shift of power. Christians used to be at the forefront of everything, opening schools and influencing education, uh, opening uh, hospitals and hospices and care environment and being at the forefront of a lot of the um, charity work that was happening in society. A group that shaped society 
not a group who becomes a minority. There's good news and bad news about that. <clears throat> One of the difficult things is that I think our theology has become very much situational rather than biblical. What do I mean by that? We allowed the environment that we have been in to shape our theology rather than the teaching of scripture. Very much of what we believed and how we've done things has become shaped by the environment we were in. It's the example I was giving to you this morning that Francis Chan talked about, where the normal for the Western Christian was to be in a position of power and leverage power, while the norm for many disciples of Jesus around the world is to be those who were very often, in the words of Jesus, being persecuted for righteousness' sake. So I think our drive for many, many years has been one on how much more political influence can we buy, how much more powerful can we become, and I guess there is an element in which maybe our theology resembled the context we were in rather than the scriptures and the teaching of Jesus. Also, I think our reaction in the future can become emotional instead of being theological. So let's say, for example, there is a case of persecution breaking out against our pastors or against our church over an issue. Our reaction, at least from what I'm gathering at the moment in looking at other examples around the world in the Western world, could easily become just emotional of being upset instead of being theological and saying, this is what we expect. This is what the scripture teaches us. This is what Jesus talked about. And my concern is that in everything, our theology and our reaction is going to be one that's biblical, not emotional, not situation. And this is why I think we need to rediscover biblical teaching. I'm going to share a screen with you. <clears throat> can you see it? Can I get you some thumbs up? Yeah, I've got a few thumbs up. I can only see a few of you, but uh, I love what Leslie Newbegin, who was a, a fantastic missiologist um, that actually wrote very sharply and prophetically ahead of his time. He said this, if the biblical story does not control our thinking, we will be swept into the story that the world tells about itself. And this is why I'm incredibly passionate that we recover a sense of biblical understanding of opposition and how to respond to it. So what did Peter write to those that were under pressure? The first thing is to really embrace this truth that scripture brings to us and live with a sense of expectation of opposition. Not we're looking for it, not that we're fatalistic, not that we're developing some sort of a victim complex, but we actually realize that discipleship and opposition go hand in hand. So these are some of the verses. Uh, and we're going to go through them. First Peter 1.6. In all this, talking about the troubles, the difficulties, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. 
these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even through refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. In 3.14, he says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. 4.12, dear friends, do not be surprised at a fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. 5.8, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers through the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So what Peter is saying is that trials and opposition are the norm for the disciples of Jesus. He's saying, look, they are temporary for a little while. And they are like the refining fire that purifies gold. He even goes to say, and these are hard words, but this is what I'm saying to you. We're not used to such strong biblical teaching on this. He says, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. We're used to blessing, having the connotation of having good health, good wealth, good relationships, everything going smoothly and being a successful person. But Peter redefines it. And he says, no, you're actually blessed when you are suffering for following Jesus. And, you know, the language is even, but this is in vain with what Jesus taught in the Beatitudes. But the language is even stronger because he's saying you should rejoice when these kind of things are happening. And really, it's part of the spiritual warfare, as I mentioned this morning, that we are involved in. The enemy is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. This is part of a normal life of following Jesus. And we need to normalize this. We need to live with that kind of a theology in our hearts and minds in order to avoid disappointment and discouragement. The second thing, I think we need to live with a biblical perspective of who God is and who we are. Very often when we're going through a difficult time, things get distorted. Things get out of focus. Bigger things become dimmed and smaller things become magnified. So he's writing to them with a biblical perspective on who God is and who we are. He's writing and he says, to God's elect, exiles scattered, to the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And continues on. And then he continues in verse, in verse 9 in chapter 2. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called, of, called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. One, three, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and his great mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And really the picture is mixed. On one hand, we are exiles. <laughs> this is not our home. And we need to realize this, that the ultimate reality isn't here. And Peter is saying, actually, what you have is you have a hope in an inheritance that will not fade, that nobody can take away, won't, won't perish, won't spoil, won't fade. And you are God's chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special position, the people of God. And actually what he's pointing towards is that although we are exiles here on earth, and this is not our home, we are not no one's people. We are not without an identity. We're not without a purpose. We are actually God's very own people. So when the trouble comes, when the difficulty comes, and we feel like we don't matter, like no, no one is for us, nobody cares, we are forgotten. No, we remind ourselves that we are a royal priesthood, God's own possession. And we have a God who cares for us, even though we're exiles. And that's the beauty of living with such a perspective. When we're tempted to lose our identity and compromise, when we're tempted to give up, when we're tempted to be discouraged, we are reminded alongside with those to whom Peter is writing, you are the people of God and he's for you. And you have an inheritance and a hope that can't be taken away. How shall we live in the face of opposition? We live holy lives. Again, the temptation when faced with opposition is to compromise. It is to walk away. It is to give up. It is to live half-heartedly. We're tempted to say, what's the point anyway? But he's encouraging those believers to live holy lives. Look at chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed that is coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. And again, it captures the same image in chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desire, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So he's saying, don't give up on living in obedience in the face of challenges, persecutions, 
opposition. And he's encouraging us to do that with the minds that are fully alert. So this is significant. Modern day 21st century Christianity tends to live from the heart and from the emotions. And I love emotions, and I think emotions have been neglected in the past. But we've got to be very careful that this is more about the mind that is alert and sober. And that sense of holiness and obedience comes from a mind that is informed by scripture and accepts the truth of what God's word is telling us. It's a call to holiness, in a sense, to live as foreigners and exiles, but to live amongst the people in such a way that they have no excuse to look at our character and see the compromise in our lives. Even more, Peter is saying that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Basically what he's saying, live like a Joseph, the Joseph of the Old Testament, live like a Daniel and his friends. Live such life in a pagan environment, godless environment. Those people see God at work in you and your character testifies and points towards him and make them see him. How shall we live in the face of opposition? He says, live loving lives. 1 Peter 1, 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. <laughs> There's a beautiful link here between truth and love. So actually, as we obey the truth, as we obey the truth of scripture, we become purified and the sign of that purity, the sign of that holiness, is a sincere love for each other. So if you extrapolate and pull back, if there is no love, sincere love, for each other, that's, that's us, never mind the outsiders, us, then there is a question whether we truly have been purified by obeying the truth. And Peter is encouraging us to love one another he uses those, the, those expressions deeply. It's almost as if he underlines it, highlights it. He says, from the heart. There is that sense of sincere and deep love that should be part of the experience of God's people as they're facing opposition. He breaks it down. Chapter 3, verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this, to this you were called. He's speaking in the context of potentially those feelings coming. This is unfair. This is unjust. I want to get my own back. And he's saying, don't do that. <laughs> don't repay evil for evil. And on the contrary, and he's upping the game. He says, not just the fact that I'm expecting you not to take revenge, but instead, bless. Mm. Because for this, you were called. And we do this by detoxing daily. Chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of any kind. This is what needs to be practiced constantly in this quest for loving lives. And these are essential in a time of opposition. 
How shall we live in the face of opposition? Leave peaceful lives. And it probably requires a deep dive that we won't do tonight into this passage because this is this is incredibly interesting to me. He's writing in chapter two, and we're going to read from verse 13 down. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. This is very interesting. And I think if you pause the button on our political views and simply embrace scripture, this is a genuine call to not be troublemakers. This is challenging because if you're thinking that somebody, a believer in a country where Christians are being oppressed, submitting to the emperor or submitting to the governors, that's a very difficult thing. What if the emperor or the governor says you shouldn't go to church? This is very complex, ethically very, very difficult. But I think the broad understanding of the passage is don't look out to be a troublemaker. It's, it's almost like, you know, verse, uh, <laughs> verse 15 is the, the core of that, captures the core sentiment of, of this. It is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. I think he's almost like Peter is saying, don't give them an excuse to persecute you even more. Now, I think probably I've underlined this and you can see it, you know, submit yourself for the Lord's sake. We're doing this not because of the government, but because we're doing it because of the Lord's sake. And then I've also underlined sent by him. So we're looking for a government that we, 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 we sense they are people that are appointed by God. And this is where some of those moral and ethical dilemmas could come in. But I think the core of the message that Peter is writing is live peaceful lives. Don't go looking for trouble or try to give them an excuse to persecute you even more. Number six, and with this we land, live evangelistic lives. Chapter three, verse 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Do this with gentleness and respect. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. This is the private act of worship that always needs to lead to a public witness. Private worship should always lead to public witness. And this is making the assumption 
as Peter is saying, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks. This is giving the assumption that the lifestyle that we have in the light of what we've already seen in the face of opposition, living holy lives, loving lives, should cause people to ask why. And we should be prepared to give the reason for the hope that we have. Why are we loving and not vengeful? Why are we holy and not compromising? And the reason is because of Christ. And he's saying, live such a life so that other people can ask questions. Be courageous, be ready to, to give an answer. Don't be afraid to give an answer and be prepared. Think about it beforehand. Be positive, speak about the hope that you have. And of course, he says, do that with gentleness and respect. And this is significant because, again, when we're under pressure, the temptation is to hide, to disengage, or to even hate those around us. And certainly, there are situations where that's the tempting thing to do instead of living evangelistically. Final one, live servant lives. In chapter 4, verse 10 and 11, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. When we come under pressure, we tend to get locked into our struggles, our problems, our difficulties. And we find it very hard to look outward. But that's the very thing Peter is saying. Don't lock yourself in. He's saying each one of us should use whatever gift you have received. There's an assumption that all of us have received a gift. And we are stewards of that gift. God has entrusted something to us. And we do this through his power and for his glory. And again, this is a warning against, in the face of opposition, against living lives of fatalism, kind of saying, oh, whatever will be, will be, and living in apathy and passivity. Peter is saying, no, 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 no. Don't pause the pause, don't put the press the pause button. Don't think this is the end. Continue to live and choose to look outward as you serve other people.